Welcome to National Gallery of Art Film Program, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of the art of film. The 2011 documentary film, A Suitcase Full of Chocolate, recounts the extraordinary history of Sofia Kozma, a brilliant Russian concert pianist whose career was suppressed by the Nazis and then by the Soviets, only to be revived in the post-war era. The film's creator, concert pianist Lincoln Mayorga, introduced the screening on May 16, 2012, at the National Gallery, where he recounted Kozma's experience and performed excerpts of works by Chopin and Rachmaninoff, among others. I want to tell you a little bit about this labor of love, which this film was. Um, Sofia Kosma, the subject of the film, is the most inspiring person I've ever known. And she was a link to the great tradition of Russian pianists. And let me tell you, that is some tradition. The most exciting pianists in history all came from this Russian school of piano playing or were influenced by it in one way or another. And you can, you can say that it goes back really to Chopin, who liberated the piano, who created a new expressive, expressive idiom, new expressive language, out of the blue, something so fresh and original. Liszt was the other great pianist of that era, the phenomenal, virtuosic, amazing matinee idol. Women literally swooned at his concerts, and, and they tore at his clothing, and uh, just the way they did for Frank Sinatra and for Elvis Presley. Uh, he was the first big rock star of the piano, but a great, great musician, a great, great pianist, and so many, many people came from far and wide to study with him. And one of the people who came to study with him was, for some reason, refused by Liszt. Liszt, who was generally a very 
quite a generous person, he did not permit Anton Rubinstein to be part of his class, maybe because he sensed that Rubinstein was a potential rival. Because Anton Rubinstein went on to be the most celebrated Russian pianist with an explosive approach to the piano. Uh, he simply played in the most unfettered manner with such incredible emotional output, um, storming, storming the piano, storming the literature, with often lots of wrong notes, and uh, he didn't care. And those who heard him, even all the best musicians, they respected him immensely. The wrong notes didn't matter because he was a force of nature. Anton Rubinstein. And his brother Nikolai was an equally fine pianist, more restrained, a little more disciplined. They both founded conservatories in Russia. Uh, Anton Rubinstein founded the Moscow, I'm sorry, the St. Petersburg Conservatory in 1864, I think it was. Uh, and Nikolai Rubinstein shortly thereafter founded the Moscow Conservatory. And out of that conservatory came these most amazing pianists. They had such thorough training. We can only, we in America don't quite get what they, what they got there in, in the way of training through the breadth of, of the literature, that is the literature that they wanted to perform, which was mostly romantic music. Um, they studied it all and they developed tremendous technical discipline. And the whole idea was to liberate to liberate these pianists, to, to cause them, to, to, to bring them to play with enormous emotion and with an individual profile. Uh, they weren't particularly interested in text, textual act, accuracy uh, in a certain kind of Germanic discipline which has its own virtues and is a different school of piano playing. They were interested in the individual and in bringing out the individual characteristics the improvisatory nature. Uh, if Anton Rubinstein said, if, if you play a piece the way it's written and you play it several times and then all of a sudden you have a better idea, by, by all means go for it. Meaning they could actually change the notes if they wanted to do that. They were all accomplished uh, improvisers and if not, they, they were always striving to be spontaneous on the platform. Well, out of this school came some phenomenal pianists. Um, Joseph Hoffman was by many considered the greatest pianist of the 20th century. Um, the few recordings that I have of Hoffman uh, would confirm that as far as I'm concerned. He simply was phenomenal and he was a very disciplined pianist. He was not, he was not impulsive in the same way that Rubinstein was, but his playing had tremendous fire and tremendous dynamic, uh, most feathery, delicate pianissimos, the thundering fortissimos, uh, a really disciplined romantic pianist. Um, and compared to these mid-19th century fellows, he was really a modern pianist. Um, Sergei Rachmaninoff was in the same class with, with uh, Hoffman and he was perhaps even more disciplined. He had a very contained style.
my, the subject of my film, Sofia Cosma, who studied in Vienna and was there in the early 30s, heard Rachmaninoff play that piece in person as an encore, and she burst into tears. It moved her so, and she went and bought the music, and it became her signature piece. In fact, you'll hear it uh, uh, on the soundtrack of the film as, as underscoring for one of the dramatic episodes of her life. Um, Rachmaninoff made a big impression on her, perhaps more than any other pianist. She heard them all. They all came through Vienna at that time. Um, Arthur Schnabel, great exponent of the Germanic tradition, a very spontaneous, uh, considered very intellectual, but really quite spontaneous when it came right down to performance. But he always was concerned with the structure of the piece, bringing out the clarity, the shape, um, and always self-effacing as far as his own ego was concerned. He was completely dedicated to the composer's intention as he saw it.
out of Russia came so many remarkable pianists. Uh, Sergei Rachmaninoff took the gold medal um, when he graduated from the Moscow Conservatory. Um, Joseph Levine took the gold medal, and a couple of years later, his wife, Rosina Levine, took the gold medal. Rosina came to, uh, they both came to New York City and uh, taught at the Juilliard School. And it's interesting that when Van Cliburn made history by winning the Tchaikovsky competition in 1958, um, or 57, I think it was, uh, that we had a Russian-trained American pianist go over there and beat the Russian pianists in Russia. <laughs> but it had to be Russian-trained to compete. Uh, Rosina Levine was a great teacher. After her husband, Joseph, uh, who was a man who eclipsed her, really, he was a wonderful pianist and one of the titans of the keyboard of the 20th century. And she kind of uh, was in his shadow for many years, but she was probably on the same level pianistically as, as he. And when he died in 1944, uh, she didn't really plan to take over at Juilliard, but they insisted that she be the teacher there. And so she had this remarkable class. Um, she began teaching there, or as head of the piano department, in the early 40s, and right up to her death at the age of 90 in uh, 1976. Um, I have to tell you something kind of amusing. I, I was a student at the, at the uh, Aspen Music Festival in 1959, and Rosina Levine was there. She was 80 years old, teaching. And uh, I was studying with Leonard Schur, who was an exponent of the Germanic uh, style of a wonderful musician, uh, a bit of a cruel teacher the kind of a guy who would, I think, wanted to make sure that his students didn't quite come up to his level. <laughs> he wanted to keep them down on just a little bit, you know. Uh, and all the Levine students, they talked a great deal about tone production. They were always talking about tone production, how one approaches the keyboard. Do you vibrate on the note? Or do you push in this way? Or do you pull out this way? Or how do you do it? How, you know, how do you produce this beautiful sound? that the Russian pianists were, were known for. Um, and we in the, in the Schur, Leonard Schur camp were rather contemptuous of all this talk about tone production, you know. And uh, even in class one time, Mr. Schur said, look, he said, this note, he said, a three-year-old can play this note as beautifully as I can, he said. But, he said, as soon as I have a second note, then there is a relationship between the two notes, and it takes artistry to bring out that relationship and to produce the kind of sound that is needed, you know. So he was essentially poo-pooing all this talk about tone production. He said the key goes only in one direction, it goes down. That's the only direction it goes no matter how you approach it. You know? All right. So the big day came, Madame Levine was going to play with the orchestra Chopin Piano Concerto. And, uh, my roommate, who was a trumpet player, said, all right, let's go, let's find out what all this tone production, tone production is about, you know. 
Or he said, tone production. So we went to the tent where they, where they used to give the concerts and the full orchestra assembled. And she came out looking rather frail at 80 and she sat down and they played the opening tutti of the Chopin E minor concerto. And she played four, six bars and my buddy turned to me and said, my God, what a beautiful tone. <laughs> it was so beautiful. The sound was just so ravishing, you know. And whatever she was doing, whatever she was teaching her students, this mystique, there was really something to it. And uh, my friend Sophia had a similarly beautiful tone. Uh, she played a, a wide-ranging repertoire of, of mostly romantic music and uh, got a beautiful sound and, and played with great, with great discipline, not any exaggerations, but with enormous emotional output.
Sophia Cosma played a great deal of Chopin. She played the waltzes and the mazurkas just exquisitely with just that right little, little bit of rubato that made them danceable, that made you want to get up and, and walk around, waltz around the room. Um, well, how I met this woman is kind of an interesting story. It was very, very much uh, a fluke. I got a phone call from her son-in-law who said, we need to find, please, would you help me find a connection for my mother-in-law? I didn't know what the heck he was talking about. And then he told me that his mother-in-law was piano soloist with the Bucharest Philharmonic, that she was visiting in America, and they wanted to figure out how she could give a concert. I said, why did you call me? He said, well, he said, I don't know anybody in the music world. He said, but somebody at work said that you were a concert pianist and that I should call you. He said, can I bring over a recording for you to listen to my mother-in-law? So he came over to my place with an LP, and right away I heard a great artist on the record playing Strauss Burlesque. So I went over to the house to meet this woman, very unpretentious, she quite serious, plump little woman. She sat down at the piano and played for me. And right away, I realized I was in the presence of a great artist in the middle of a, you know, in the middle of a bean field in a tract home in, in Oxnard, California. Here was a world-class artist. So a friend of mine who was conductor of the local orchestra was a very nice man. And I called him up and told him how great she was. And I said... He'd asked me to do a, a benefit for him, which I couldn't do. I said, I think you should consider this marvelous artist. So he came over the next Sunday and met her and heard her play and right away got the message and engaged her. And she played the Tchaikovsky Concerto with the Ventura County Symphony. And it was absolutely memorable. It was, for her, a very important thing. It was her American debut, and she took it seriously. And the audience went crazy for her. Um, then I learned her story as I got to know and spend a little time with the family. She had been a prize winner in the international competition in Vienna in 1933. The soon-to-become world-famous pianist Dino Lepati placed second, and she placed third in the competition. The first-place winner is long forgotten. Uh, she was living in Vienna. She decided to study there with a wonderful teacher, Stephen Isselis, another product of the Russian school uh, who had taught, he had taught at the Moscow Conservatory. When Hitler decided to invade Austria, she saw some terrible atrocities there committed against the Jews, and her father said, you get home. It's not safe for you to be there. She was Jewish. Her teacher wanted her to go to, to England with him. He had some concerts there, and he intended to defect, actually. But she made the fateful decision to go to obey her father and to go back to Riga. Riga had just been annexed by the Soviets. 
The Soviets took a look at her passport. She was not, she'd been living in Vienna, so she now had an Austrian passport. They knew she'd been studying in a German-speaking country for several years, and they considered her a prime suspect. They arrested her. It was the end of a perfect day. They had been to the beach. She had been with her family to the beach. When she came home, the military police were there. They arrested her. The following day, they put her on a cattle car, along with hundreds of others, jammed into these boxcars, and they shipped her off to Siberia. She never saw her family again. And the irony of it all is that the seven years that she spent in the gulag, in the labor camp, for no reason at all, no charges, no trial, no nothing, those seven years ended up saving her life because her whole family was wiped out by the Nazis there in Riga. How she managed to rebuild her life after she was finally discharged from the prison is the story of, of this film. Um, it's remarkable. She thought she'd never get out alive, let alone play the piano again. And ultimately, she became one of the top pianists in Eastern Europe. And I'll let the film tell the rest of the story to you. She gave birth to a child while in prison. Uh, one of her fellow prisoners became her husband. And then they were separated when they discharged her and her, and her daughter. And ultimately, she was reunited with him in another very repressive regime, Romania. And uh, the rest of the story, we'll, we'll see it unfold on the screen. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a National Gallery of Art film program podcast. 